From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia. I'm Sage Tangway, and I'm joined once again by Dr. Ben Bernard. Today on Symposia, we are featuring a guest lecturer who came and visited Brown College earlier this fall. Ben, this is a pretty common occurrence at Brown College, isn't it? Well, I'd say one of the most rewarding aspects of being a faculty fellow here in Brown Residential College is being able to connect students with dear friends and colleagues from all over the place who are doing work that is of interest or meaningful to students. That is to say work that fits into the areas that they're interested in learning more about or curious about. And so in this particular instance, we had a lot of students who were really interested in the history of gender and sexuality and the history of higher education institutions. It just so happens that one of my dear friends and colleagues is uh, is an expert in this area. So it, it made the perfect opportunity for us to, to bring together this tremendous scholar and our Brown students. First, we'll hear an introduction from Ben. Let's take a listen. I'd like to welcome you all to Brown Residential College's first faculty speaker event of the year. Uh, this event is very special to me because it brings together two UVA institutions and two sides of me as a teacher and scholar here at UVA. Um, I'm a postdoc teaching in the College of Arts and Sciences where I offer an interdisciplinary course in our engagement program, which is the uh, kind of path-breaking interdisciplinary first-year undergraduate uh, curriculum. Uh, the class that I teach is called You Are Who You Meet, The Ethics of Friendship. Um, in our course, we consider the nature of friendship from a variety of disciplinary perspectives. So uh, history, philosophy, gender studies, psychology, and much more. Um, and one thing that we've discovered, I think, as a class over the course of this quarter, um, is that historically the boundary between friendship uh, and romance and love and other kinds of uh, relationships is not always clear. And that many of the thinkers that we've read and encountered so far consider friendship to be a subset of love rather than a separate category. And furthermore, that friendship has often been thought of as a gender segregated enterprise. So to understand friendship, maybe we also need to understand and consider gender and, and sexuality. Um, and I'm so glad to see my class here, who, uh, by the way, they're all doing a fantastic job with a wonky interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary class that's being offered for the very first time. Um, and if you're in my class, there's a sign-in sheet going around somewhere. So just be on the lookout for that. Um, as a resident faculty fellow in Brown College, uh, as John said, I live and work among students of all four years. Um, and so uh, last year, we've had a lot of conversations as a community about gender and gender in universities. Um, and so we thought the perfect way to shed light on the history of these conversations is to invite a, an expert on the history of gender and college university life, and, and including that residential aspect. Um, uh, and these conversations, I think, are also important for uh, another reason, which is that the University of Virginia, as the students are, are, are talking about uh, lately, UVA is reconsidering the purpose and structure of undergraduate housing. And, and so as a historian, my first instinct is to ask, well, how did we get here? What are residential colleges designed for? 
How did they come to be in the first place? And with understanding that past, hopefully that can help us to think about uh, making, uh, making what we want to see happen in the future, to think critically about the role of institutions in our own lives. And it turns out that the model of residential colleges uh, that we're living in, that this is based on, comes out of the world that Emily Rutherford studies, out of this kind of world of, of the 19th century uh, uh, in, in the English-speaking world. So suffice it to say that Emily Rutherford and I have had um, a lot to talk about over the years. Emily is both a steadfast friend who fits the definitions of uh, a friend that we've been reading from all of you know Plato and Aristotle and Cicero Montaigne, everything they have to say, Emily uh, does with aplomb. Uh, and Emily's also, they're also a powerful voice in historical scholarship. So Dr. Emily Rutherford is the Brock Jr. Research Fellow in History at Corpus Christi College at Oxford. They've published on topics such as the ideas of John Addington Simmons, who's an important Oxford classicist in the late 19th century, who, who played a role in defining uh, what has the concept that has become homosexuality and the homo-hetero binary. Um, that work, that research, emerged from Emily's undergraduate thesis at Princeton, which clocked in at well over 200 pages long, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, they're also instrumental uh, there in the campaign for gender neutral housing during the peak of you know, the political issues that really defined our college experience, like the marriage equality debates and things like that. Um, in 2019, one of my favorite Emily Rutherford memories is we <laughs> co-hosted a conference together at Princeton called Histories of Sexuality and Erudition that brought gender studies to bear on the history of institutions of knowledge making and dissemination. And so now we've been talking for a number of years about some of the issues at stake that you'll hear about today. Um, Emily Rutherford is also writing a book and has finished a draft of that book uh, about the admission of women to modern universities and the consequences of those uh, um, uh, debates for understandings of gender and sexuality that uh, continue to reverberate today. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Emily Rutherford to the University of Virginia. Thanks everyone for being here. I was told I have to speak into these microphones, so I'm going to mostly stand still and read from the lectern. Uh, but it's really wonderful to see you all here. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you so much to Ben for everything that you've done to make this possible. And thank you to Chris as well for all your help um, and to everyone at Brown. And uh, I'm excited. What I was going to do was to set the scene with a 10 second TikTok. Uh, to sort of orient us around the idea of the historians will say they were just roommates or historians will say they were just good friends meme. Can you raise your hand if that's like a familiar meme to you? Okay, great. So I don't have to do a ton of scene setting. Uh, what I would, the, if you sort of think about um, what the message of that meme formula is, historians will say they were just roommates or just good friends. Um, it's that historians are this kind of external and perhaps slightly villainous force dedicated to erasing the reality of queer history, while the, the sort of the speaker, the creator of the meme, and the presumed, the sort of presumptively queer viewer of the meme are um, not professional historians, but are united in their shared understanding that they are uncovering the queer truth that historians have sought to hide, right? So that's the kind of conflict that's being staged. And when I first started to notice these memes a couple years ago, I felt a bit attacked because I'm an academic historian and my research and teaching tend to focus on telling complicated, um, 
nuanced and often politically unsatisfying stories about the queer past. So am I historians? Am I this villainous force erasing queer history? Is this what my students in Oxford think about my teaching? But I was also intrigued, because the meme makes some interesting claims about the nature of expertise, about the nature of research and teaching in academic history, about who gets to tell and to claim ownership over certain kinds of narratives about the past, and about how we can and should interpret the lives of people who lived in different times and places. More than 30 years ago, um, what people at the time back in sort of the 1980s, 1990s called lesbian and gay history was riven with something that at the time people called the transhistoricist social constructionist debate. Um, lesbian and gay historians, the vast majority of whom identified as lesbian and gay themselves, disagreed vociferously about whether it was politically important to establish connections between people in the past and present day lesbians and gay men, or whether it was more important to understand on their own terms the social and cultural contexts in which people in the past lived, in which sexual orientation as such wasn't a part of how people understood their own identities or how society was organized. So the upshot of this debate was that we academic historians reached a kind of compromise middle ground, though social constructionism mostly won out. But the, I think that the historians will say they were just good friends meme suggests that lots of up and coming would be queer historians outside professional academic history are demonstrating a renewed interest in some ways in the transhistoricist position. So what does it mean to claim as queer people from the past who ne didn't necessarily name themselves as such. How do we know whether two people were in a relationship, loved one another, or had sex? What can and can't archival documents tell us? Um, and how important are those questions actually to what it means to practice queer history in the academy today? So in the next 40 minutes or so, I am going to make the PowerPoint work and uh, thank you to Justin, our hero. Uh, and I'd like to invite us to think through some of these questions about what queer history is um, through the prism of the lives of these women um, who feature in the book that I've just finished um, about gender and British higher education in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So Marjorie Fry, Rose Sidgwick, and Marjorie Rackstraw were women academics and university administrators who pursued careers in the first decades of the 20th century. In a historical moment in which it was unthinkable and sometimes structurally impossible for a middle-class woman both to marry and to pursue a professional career, Fry, Sidgwick, and Rackstraw all lived lives by definition opposed to opposite-sex marriage, reproduction, and the nuclear family. They also lived at a particular moment when the understanding of what intimacy between women meant was especially in flux. The category lesbian was available to them. Indeed, they lived at a time when the hetero-homo binary was becoming increasingly stable and hegemonic as a framework for distinguishing normal from abnormal behavior, especially for women. But there is no evidence that any of these women ever used that category to understand themselves. All of them understood themselves as spinsters, as single women. But to what extent was a life lived outside marriage and reproduction choice? And to what extent was it circumstance, a byproduct of the decision to put career first? How can we understand what Fry, Sidgwick, and Rackstraw meant to each other and to the other important people in their lives in terms that would have made sense to them? 
And what do their lives tell us about queer history and what it means for academic historians like me to research and tell queer stories? So I'm going to start by telling you the story of Fry, Sidgwick, and Rackstraw's overlapping lives, focusing particularly on the time that they all spent together working at the University of Birmingham and living as resident faculty, note our question of residential communities in the Women's Hall of Residence at Birmingham. Uh, and once I've told the story, I'll offer some thoughts about what it all means. How historians have understood people like Fry, Sidgwick, and Rackstraw has changed over time and their own archives don't allow us to draw any definitive once and for all conclusions about whether they were or weren't lesbian or queer, or whether the kinds of desires and intimate relationships they had look like the kinds of desires or intimate relationships we imagine as constitutive of being lesbian today. But, I'll argue, whether Fry, Sidgwick, and Rackstraw meant to live queer lives or not, the life paths they carved out for themselves and for other women at odds with the imperatives of marriage and reproduction, the family and kinship structures they created are and should be central to what we mean when we talk about queer history. Okay, so our story starts in Somerville College, Oxford, one of Oxford's colleges in 1894 when Marjorie Fry arrived to study math. Fry was from a very wealthy Quaker family. Her grandfather had made a fortune as a chocolate manufacturer and her father was a judge and she grew up in London. Fry's brothers went to Cambridge, but her parents did not believe in higher education for women. It took years of steady campaigning for Fry to convince her parents to allow her to attend Somerville, although they insisted that she not sit any exams concerned about the effect that the stress might have on her health. So Somerville in the 1890s was a pivotal place and time in the history of women's higher education in Britain. Only 15 years old in 1894, the college had quickly established itself as both a safe and a respectable place for upper middle class parents to send their daughters, and as the nation's premier academic institution for intelligent and highly educated women with ambition. At Somerville, students adhered to strict norms of propriety and respectability. They had to attend lectures with a chaperone. They could not socialize with men students but they were taught by the very best tutors and were encouraged to have the highest aspirations for their careers and for the contribution that they might make to wider society. As compared to women students at other UK universities at this time, Summer Somerville women tended to come from especially well-off and socially prominent backgrounds, and they tended accordingly to perceive themselves to have a kind of responsibility to dedicate their lives to the good of society. Having pursued haphazard and winding roads through education at a time when girls' formal academic secondary education was still sparse, many were older than the average man Oxford student, well into their 20s at the time they began their degrees and already moving beyond the typical age of marriage for women. Fry was 20 at the time she started university. Her closest friends were 22 and 27. What work they would do, how they would make the best use of their social and educational advantages, and how they would give purpose and meaning to their lives was of central concern to them. In letters to each other in the years after they completed their studies, Fry and her friends discussed lofty ambitions, the law, politics, academia, all remarkable aspirations in a time when women did not have the vote, could not study law, and Fry's parents hadn't even let her take the exams that would qualify her to be a school teacher or pursue graduate study. <coughs> Though their ideas ranged widely, though, one career that Fry and her friends never considered was marriage. In the 1890s, almost 90% of all British women married at some point in their lives, but only 30% of women university graduates did. For middle-class women at this time, formal paid employment and marriage were considered mutually exclusive. 
It was not considered respectable for middle-class women to work outside the home. Many employers imposed formal marriage bars that required women to resign their positions upon marriage. And on the other side of the coin, it was those women who did not have husbands who most needed to earn their own livings. To be sure, there were increasing opportunities in this period for married women to assume vocations outside the home, whether through volunteer work, political and social activism, or working together with their husbands in a family business or a common intellectual project. But by focusing their aspirations on professional careers, Fry and her friends were by definition removing marriage and therefore children from the life possibilities open to them. For some, this was merely an unfortunate byproduct of pursuing a career, for others, the central attraction. But in either case, they became creative, crafting their own networks of intimacy, love, and care. So after she left Somerville, Fry had been languishing at home, enduring a difficult relationship with her parents, and struggling to work out what she might want to do with her life, when the principal of Somerville offered her a job as the college librarian. She jumped at the chance to escape from her parents' house, and in addition to superintending the design and construction of a new library building, she developed a rich social and professional life in Oxford. After the new library opened, Fry needed help running it, and she gained a new colleague, Rose Sidgwick, history tutor and assistant librarian. Sidgwick was three years younger than Fry, the eldest child of an Oxford academic. Though both Sidgwick and Fry were from affluent intellectual backgrounds, Sidgwick had grown up in an environment much more supportive of women's education and careers. Her father was one of the most vocal and hardworking advocates of women's education in Oxford. She had received an excellent secondary education, lived at home throughout university, received top results in her history examinations, and taught at a teacher training college before joining Somerville in 1903. Now, we only have Sidgwick's letters to Fry, not the other way around. There is much we do not know about the internal content of their relationship and how they made sense of what they were to one another. And that's a question with which Sidgwick herself sought to grapple. In an undated poem written in honor of Fry's birthday, Sidgwick wrote that she struggled with her, how to express her feelings for Fry when, quote, to talk of love does not interest you. The rest of this poem switches back and forth between the language of friend and lover. Take your will, the speaker of the poem says about the terminology. Yet, reading through Sidgwick's letters to Fry, a picture emerges of the two women's physical and emotional intimacy and of a bond unlike their connections to other friends and family. Sidgwick's letters address Fry as dearest, expressing pain when they are apart and a desire to be reunited. In one 1906 letter, Sidgwick says that she cannot quite find the right words to express how she feels about Fry, quote, except by saying that 24 hours of you gives me a clearer and wider perception of what is meant by Christianity. Nor was this only a disembodied spiritual friendship. In a letter um, in which Sidgwick told Fry about a time when she went skinny dipping while on holiday, she wrote, quote, I thought at the time that you would like me better if you'd seen me splashing there with nothing on. Above all, Sidgwick's expressions of love were playful and open-hearted. She signed one letter, yours that loves you more every day so that I don't know where we shall be in 1950, R.S. Now we'll find out by the end of this talk where Sidgwick and Fry were in 1950. But first, the next step in their careers, a step they took together. Shortly after the new Somerville Library opened, Fry applied for and received a job as the inaugural Warden of University House, um, the first women's hall of residence at the University of Birmingham. 
Though there had been a technical college in Birmingham for decades, in 1900, work had begun on a new planned campus in the leafy suburb of Edgbaston, Britain's first red brick and first campus university. That signifies more in Britain. Uh, but, you know, it's a sort of, it's like a state university. Um, gender integration had always been central to the vision for Birmingham. The university was headed by progressive administrators who sought to offer the same academic opportunities to women as to men, while still recognizing that women pursuing higher education in this period needed distinct forms of support. While almost half of women university students outside of Oxford and Cambridge in this period lived at home and commuted, others lived too far away and would not be able to attend university unless they could access safe, respectable accommodation and welfare support designed with women students specifically in mind. Fry was 30 when she accepted the university house job, and she saw it as a fork in the road. Two years previous, she had turned down a proposal of marriage from an Oxford clergyman and academic. By moving to Birmingham, she perceived herself to be firmly and finally leaving behind the possibility of marrying and having children, instead devoting herself to a life of work that would, she hoped, be socially useful as well as personally satisfying. Her first step in this regard was to turn being the warden of a hall of residence into a profession. The first generations of wardens of women's halls had been respectable widows who saw their role as keeping house and chaperoning the young women in their care. Sometimes they even refused payment as beneath their dignity. Fry, by contrast, only accepted the job on the condition that she would be able to advise students academically and guide their intellectual development. She negotiated a higher salary and a seat on the university senate. As the students came, Fry undertook to get to know each one personally finding out about her academic interests and life aspirations. She treated them as adults, replacing long lists of rules with a general injunction to respect one's fellow residents and permitting a fairly wide degree of social interaction with men students. The year after Fry started at Birmingham, Sidgwick followed. She was hired as a history lecturer, one of the first women in the UK to gain an academic position that was also open to men applicants though it's tempting also to think of her and Fry as having cleverly solved the so-called two-body problem that bedevils academic couples to this day. She moved into University House too, as did other women administrators and faculty. A philosophy lecturer, two French teaching assistants, a bursar, that's a, like a finance director, and a deputy warden. Most of the faculty had been educated in the Oxford and Cambridge Women's Colleges, and they drew on what they had learned there about how to craft residential educational communities. They prized academic success, but also fun. Amateur theater was a particular focus of their efforts. They established a student government, and they encouraged student self-governance within it, but they also prized faculty participation in extracurricular life and easy relations between staff and students. In her first term, seeking to get what was at that time a chilly and distant community to relate to one another as friends, Fry led the hall's residence in making a snowman in the likeness of the university president. <laughs> Candid photographs from the early years of University House show students posing informally, <clears throat> excuse me, laughing and smiling, offering a glimpse of the culture of this community. In their early years, women's colleges and halls advertised themselves as families. Somerville's first advertising brochure had called it an English family. One of Oxford's other women's colleges, Lady Margaret Hall, not to be outdone, advertised itself as a Christian family. To 20th century feminist historians, 
Um, this kind of language of family signified the unsatisfying compromises that pioneers of women's education had had to make in order to gain a tenuous foothold on hostile ground. A family seemed to signify the families of origin, whom so many women, like Fry, had defied in order to pursue higher education and professional work. But to dismiss, I think, so quickly talk of family as regressive risks blinding us to the ways that University House was a family. It was not a normative Victorian nuclear family headed by a stern Christian patriarch and organized around a male breadwinner ideal. But it was a wide extended family, a space of domesticity, informality, friendship, and fun. It had pets. A dog joined the household early on. It had benevolent uncles in the form of the university's senior male administrators who dropped in unannounced for dinner and a commitment to treating everyone from the domestic staff to distinguished visitors with respect, if not reverence. It had a younger generation in the form of the students whose personal and professional development Fry, Sidgwick, and their colleagues guided, and it had an older generation comprising several resident senior members, though I want to suggest Fry's and Sidgwick's dyadic relationship was at its center, the heart of what made University House a family and a home. To explore this further, we need to take the story forward a few years into the upheaval brought about by World War I. At the end of the 1913 to 1914 academic year, Fry had resigned as warden. Having inherited money from the family chocolate fortune, she felt that it would be unethical also to draw a salary, and she intended to enter local politics. She and Sidgwick rented a house together while Sidgwick continued teaching at the university. But when Britain entered the war in August 1914, plans changed. Fry joined the Quaker war relief effort, camping just behind the front lines of the Western Front, providing food parcels, first aid, and childcare to French refugees whose villages had been destroyed. She inspired several University House students to follow her example, but Sidgwick stayed behind, supervising University House's move into rented accommodation after the War Office requisitioned their building. Sidgwick struggled with guilt at remaining in Birmingham. Most of her friends had taken up war work and her youngest brother, Hugh, to whom she was close, was an army captain. The letters that she exchanged with Fry while the latter was in France were filled with uncertainty on both sides. Fry, writing shortly after arriving in France in the spring of 1915, expressed anxiety about, quote, the vagueness and vastness of what I have to do, and she wished Sidgwick could come to France to reassure her that what she was doing was useful. Sidgwick's letters are those of the partner who has been left behind, Darling, I am thankful you are not a soldier fighting, she wrote in 1915. A 1917 letter accompanied a parcel including home comforts such as powdered shampoo. In the letter, Sidgwick wondered if she and other University House staff should simply shut the hostel for the duration of the war and all join Fry in France. Throughout their wartime correspondence, both Fry and Sidgwick wrote of the difficulty of not being able to talk to each other or to be close to one another, of the limits of what can be said in a letter. Though Fry was not a soldier fighting, she was still enduring discomfort and danger, and she and Sidgwick figured their relationship in the paradigm of couples torn asunder by the conf conflagration. There was an unspoken tension, too, it seems, in their language, as they worked through challenging moral questions about whether they and their friends and family were doing enough or the right kind of work. One of Fry's closest friends, a Birmingham math lecturer, was killed in action in 1916. In 1917, Sidgwick's brother Hugh was also killed. Sidgwick and her sisters became close to Hugh's fiancée, adopting her as part of their family as they mourned together. 
Both Fry and Citric were devastated by these losses and struggled to ascertain what each other were truly feeling and how best to support each other. But Citric found a new source of meaning in imagining that the war might indirectly enact progressive political change. Drawing on her background as a historian, she lectured on internationalism, on international relations, for the Workers' Educational Association and the League of Nations Union, sort of public interest groups in Birmingham. She wrote to Fry with a renewed sense of optimism about the conversations she was having with other internationalists in Birmingham. Quote, with the suffrage and Russia on the way to freedom and some hope of a League of Nations, one can't help seeing that something has come out of these three black years. An opportunity to, to contribute to the internationalist cause came in summer 1918, when the British Foreign Office invited Fry to join a British educational mission to the United States. Since the war had foreclosed the possibility of academic collaboration with Germany for both British and American academics, the British and US governments saw an opportunity to use universities to strengthen a strategic bond with one another. Fry was to join six other academics and university administrators on a four-month tour of dozens of US colleges and universities, promoting awareness of the UK higher education sector and opportunities for international collaboration in research and teaching. Fry had returned from France nine months previous, but her father was dying and she was needed to support her family of origin. So she suggested that Sidgwick go to America in her stead. Sidgwick hesitated at first, but the trip was an unmissable opportunity. She scrambled to find people to cover her teaching for the autumn term, and she set sail alongside the mission's other woman delegate, Bedford College English professor Caroline Spurgeon. At the dock in New York, they were met by their American host, Dean of Barnard College, Virginia Gildersleeve, who was at the time the US's most prominent woman university administrator. Sidgwick Spurgeon and their five male colleagues had an ambitious itinerary. They were celebrated everywhere they went with ample opportunity to revel in newfound celebrity status. Sidgwick's and Spurgeon's schedule was especially hectic, necessitating squeezing extra visits to women's colleges in among the main itinerary of men's and coeducational institutions and involving a bevy of high society invitations in Boston, New York, and Washington. They also addressed countless non-academic women's organizations from social clubs to suffrage campaigns. Despite the challenges of the trip, Sidgwick's travel diary shows the excitement with which she greeted the new information she was gleaning about life for women students in the US. She found the campuses delightful, heavenly, and jolly. She celebrated the resources Americans were willing to dedicate to higher education, their state-of-the-art facilities and spacious campuses. So while all this was happening, an unusually virulent strain of influenza was circulating in the United States, foreshadowing, right? It had arisen in 1917, probably somewhere in the American Midwest or in Western Europe. As soldiers demobilized at the end of the war, they carried it around the world. It infected 500 million people globally and killed as many as 100 million, 6% of the global population, most of them healthy young adults. Spurgeon and Sidgwick both came down with influenza while visiting New York. Spurgeon recovered quickly, but Sidgwick became critically ill. She was admitted to the Columbia University Hospital where she spent over two weeks before dying on December 28, 1918. No one had thought to tell Fry that Sidgwick was even ill. She learned of Sidgwick's death on January 1st, when Sidgwick's sister Ethel sent her a telegram, four days later, after an obituary had already run in the New York Tribune. Fry felt consumed with survivor's guilt, feeling as if, in having nominated Sidgwick for the trip in her stead, it was all her fault. 
She was also angry that no one had told her that she had been unable to send Sidgwick a telegram saying that she loved her before she died. Though no one from the UK was able to travel to New York for the funeral, Ethel came a few months later to see Sidgwick's grave and order a headstone. Fry could only pack up Sidgwick's belongings to send to her family and vacate their house in Birmingham. She moved to London, asking a friend to come sit with her in the last hours before leaving Birmingham because being alone in the empty house was unbearable. Quote. So despite these ways in which, in death, Sidgwick's and Fry's relationship was denied recognition, there were paradigms available with which Fry could make sense of her loss. In 1918, countless people across all levels of society had lost loved ones, as, of course, had Fry and Sidgwick themselves a couple years earlier. And Sidgwick had, after all, been on a diplomatic mission in aid of the war effort. At the High Church Anglican funeral in the Columbia University Chapel, her coffin was draped in a Union Jack, and the pallbearers included senior diplomats, politicians, and American University administrators. The Women Academics American host, Virginia Gildersleeve, later recalled, quote, I felt that she had died as truly in the service of her country as had the thousands of her young countrymen who had fallen on the fields of Flanders and of France. Fry echoed this comparison. Writing to her mother about her regret that she could not have been at Sidgwick's side as she lay ill, she said, of course, it's what happened to all those soldiers. If Sidgwick was a soldier, that gave Fry a script through which she could participate in a kind of collective mourning alongside those who had also lost lovers and partners in the war. She wrote Sidgwick's official obituary and had printed a collection of Sidgwick's poetry and speeches that she could send to former students and other well-wishers. And also I'll mention the University of Birmingham put Sidgwick on the war memorial at the university and she's one of two women on the war memorial. Um, and we know that Fry must have saved Sidgwick's papers, including the love letters and poetry Sidgwick sent her and the travel diary that she kept in the US because those papers are kept today at Somerville, forever interleaved among Fry's own. The faculty and alumni of University House created a small memorial garden in Sidgwick's honor. Although University House is now part of the business school at Birmingham, the garden is still there. For the rest of her life, Fry would send money for its upkeep. So though Fry's and Sidgwick's relationship ended prematurely and in tragedy, it had some important legacies. One was a transnational network of women academics united under the internationalist principles that Sidgwick had sought to further. Sidgwick's colleague Caroline Spurgeon and their host Virginia Gildersleeve themselves entered into what was to become a 24-year domestic partnership, and they became the founders and first presidents of the International Federation of University Women, an organization that mostly organized international fellowship and study abroad programs, but that believed highly educated women were uniquely positioned to solve international relations' most intractable problems, which is, you know, a bold claim, but go for it, I guess. Um, one of the organization's first acts was to establish a Rose Sidgwick Memorial Fellowship for a British woman to pursue an exchange year or graduate study in the US. The IFUW had world historical objectives, but arguably more important and lasting were Fry's and Sidgwick's legacies closer to home. The family of University House was not a biological one, but in its own way, it produced children. One such child was Marjorie Rackstraw, who came to Birmingham in 1908 to study history and joined the community at University House. She adopted her history lecturer and the hall's warden as her aunts. When she pursued an exchange year in the US after taking her degree, Sidgwick and Fry wrote her joint letters addressing her as dearest niece. In 1913, Rackstraw came back to University House as bursar, but on the outbreak of war, she followed Fry's example and devoted herself to Quaker war relief, 
despite not having a Quaker background herself. Returning in 1924 from her work helping famine victims in Russia, she took up the position of warden at Masson Hall, the University of Edinburgh's first hall of residence for women. Here, too, Rackstraw learned from her aunt's example, working to revolutionize the role of the warden within the university ecosystem. In her hiring negotiations, she, she secured a higher salary, a promise to hire an assistant warden, and a vote on relevant university committees. Within six months of beginning her work, she developed a new financial plan for the hall that would allow for expansion, and in a critical statement of the role's professionalization, she secured membership in the Federated Superannuation Scheme for Universities, the 10-year-old National Pension Scheme for University Staff, the TIAA of Britain, for those who know what that means. As at University House, the culture that pertained among Mass and staff and students was not only informal, but took a modern approach to supervision of the hall's residents that recognized that they were adults and that the war had altered expectations for middle-class young women's behavior. Rackstraw's scrapbooks include annual group portraits of the hall's residents, arranged in rows, but candidly, smiling and laughing with their arms around each other. Dogs and babies appear in some of these photos, telegraphing the sense that Masson was a home for students, resident faculty, and domestic staff. Rackstraw remained warden at Masson until 1937, when she was 49. Like Fry, she inherited some money that meant that she could pursue volunteer work and local politics instead. Like Fry, she moved to London. While Fry continued to have an illustrious public career as a distinguished prison reform advocate, higher education administrator, and public intellectual, Rackstraw worked closer to home, serving as a labor member of the London County Council and advocating in particular for the needs of the elderly. In 1968, a Hampstead, Hampstead is a place in North London, a Hampstead housing association that had built a new block of flats for older people wanted to name it after Rackstraw. By this time 80 years old, she initially resisted, but she relented because she realized that it was a way to pass on her family name. The flats still stand on Primrose Hill Road. There are many kinds of children. Some are council flats made of red brick. After the Second World War, Fry became a popular contributor on the BBC at a time when few women's voices were heard on the radio. On Tuesday, December 2nd, 1952, at 9.55 p.m., she presented a talk on the home service entitled The Single Woman. Proposing to speak, quote, as a spinster to spinsters, Fry radically spoke openly of the pain and loneliness of going without marriage, by implication without having sexual fulfillment, and without children, of, quote, simply watching all the things taken for granted in other lives passing you by. 78 years old when she delivered this talk, this sense of having fundamentally missed out is how Fry chose to characterize the entire sweep of her accomplished life. Now, coming across the transcript of this talk in Fry's papers challenged the view I had built up from the rest of her archival record. It pushed me to rethink the reading I had developed of her life outside of marriage as entirely freely chosen, and of her relationship with Sidgwick as for her equivalent to, or perhaps even better than, an opposite-sex marriage recognized by church and state. <coughs> it also pushed me to look again at, and really to see, the intimacies with men that she had enjoyed throughout her life, her courtship with the Oxford academic when she was at Somerville, her close friendship with the Birmingham mathematician who had been killed in the war. How Fry narrated her own life at least from this re retrospective moment in the 1950s, challenges any simplistic reading of it as a story of queer fulfillment and self-actualization. The real pain in her language and having missed out on something she truly wanted 
is not only an expression of social ostracization due to having an unconventional lifestyle, it's also an authentic assertion that her life did not afford her the kinds of intimacies and relationships that she desired. And I, this sort of, I can say more about this later, about how I sort of tell the story in my book and the argument that I make about sort of sexual categories and identity there if people want to sort of, are confused by that and want to know more. But for the moment, where does this leave us? I'd like to close this story with three morals. So the first is about what academic queer history is and what academic queer historians do. As the British queer historian Laura Doan has written, queer history, Doan thinks that queer history should, we can say that at least one of the things that queer history is, is that it's a method, not an object of study. It's a lens through which to view indeterminacies and irregularities, those elements of lives, communities, and feelings that seem, in the original meaning of the word queer, slightly askew. Queer history is what allows us to apprehend how Fry thought about herself as a lifelong single woman. It's what allows us to leave suspended and unresolved the question of whether and how Sidgwick's and Fry's relationship was erotic or sexual. It's what allows us to cautiously situate Sidgwick, Fry, and Rackstraw alongside others in their time and place who lived lives outside, or outside of or against marriage and the nuclear family. Academic queer history seeks precisely not to come down on one side or another of the were they or weren't they question. Um, I like this quote from um, the queer theorist Eve Sedgwick, um, who wrote in 1994, that's one of the things that queer can refer to, the open mesh of possibilities, gaps, overlaps, dissonances and resonances, lapses and excesses of meaning. When the constituent elements of anyone's gender, of anyone's sexuality, aren't made or can't be made to signify monolithically. But the project of queer history can also respect and sit alongside the many ways that we, historians and not, construct our own folk genealogies of gender and sexual minority communities, finding echoes and resonances, at times surprising ones, in the lives of those long dead. Queer history is not in the business of denying people the personal meaning that they might derive from relating to historical actors. But it is in the business of asking different, and I hope in some ways less satisfying, actually, questions. Okay, so that was the first moral of the story. And the second moral of the story is, in contradistinction to everything I just said, <laughs> presentist, it's ahistorical, and it's political. Since the 1970s, gay and queer politics have been about so much more than staking a claim for the validity of congenital same-sex sexual object choice. Central, among other things, to the demands of radical gay and queer activists has been a critique of the nuclear family as the primary site of affective bonding and personal loyalty. Gay and queer people often experience rejection from their families of origin and have often not had their most important relationships recognized by the state, religious institutions, or society. Out of this has emerged the space to imagine other possibilities. We don't need to read people in the past as having had dyadic, monogamous, romantic partnerships in order to appreciate possibilities for more multivalent stories about intimacy and connection. Fry's life is a story about at least one dyadic partnership, but also about a strained but ongoing committed relationship to her family of origin, about other close friendships with women and with men, about protégés like Marjorie Rackstraw, who became family too. My point in saying this is to ask us, if we think back to the meme, right, which with, with which I began this talk, to take the just out of just good friends and to appreciate what the philosopher Michel Foucault called friendship as a way of life, 
as central to the queer political project. To call people in the past good friends should not be to minimize their relationship, but rather to celebrate the many ways that people have found connection and community with one another, often in the face of oppressive social and political structures. And finally, the third moral. I'd like to suggest that it's no accident that the story of queer history, community, intimacy, and chosen family that I've told today took place within the context of universities. Ever since the oldest European universities were established as religious foundations whose members were expected to conform to clerical celibacy, residential higher education has afforded possibilities for family and community life beyond or outside of marriage and biological reproduction. For centuries, residential collegiate life has offered a refuge to those who could not or did not want to marry, and has also offered a way for those who could not or did not want to have children of their own to concern themselves with the care of the young. The queer story I want to leave you with today is not only that of Fry's and Sidgwick's relationship, but that of their care for their student, Marjorie Rackstraw, who followed her adoptive aunt's example and became a warden just like them. The end. Dr. Emily Rutherford is the Brock Jr. Research Fellow in History at Corpus Christi College in Oxford. Listeners can learn more about, uh, about their work at emilymrutherford.com. This is only part one of a two-part episode. Make sure to check out the question and answer portion of this lecture on the next episode of Symposia. This episode was produced by Sage Tangway and Ben Bernard. Symposia is a production of the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and of Brown Residential College at the University of Virginia. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.